Well, thank you for remaining standing. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. So if you want to follow along in your Bible or bring it up on your phone, here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Oh, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, Jonah. And I have to say, Karen, that was like one of the best scripture readings. It was so emotive. And you like got the punchlines just right. That, like, that was amazing. Um, well, I suppose before we get into Jonah, I just want to say, we, we said it out there, but thank you all so much, all of you that just came out to the church camp out. Hopefully none of you came here last Sunday uh, because we didn't have, well, if you did, you discovered we did not have a gathering here. Uh, we, took, uh, we took Sunday off to be together out uh, camping outside of Newport. Just want to publicly again thank Charlie Morris for taking so much initiative and as well as uh, the rest of the crew, um, especially Ken Myers with his super RV back there. Uh, the one-stop shop for all your camping needs, right there at Ken's. Um, that was really a treat for our family. That was the first time our family had ever attempted to camp with our little kids, and it went awesome. It was great. We had a wonderful time. We're ready to, ready to do it again. 
And uh, more than that, it, it's, it really is amazing what can happen to a community of people when you get that kind of unbroken time together, two, three days together, just hanging out and keeping the kids from harming one another and, uh, uh, you know, singing Bohemian Rhapsody uh, incomprehensibly late at, you know, midnight or whatever for all the tents nearby. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really a, a gift and the kind of thing that I hope we'll do more of. We're already talking about the same thing next year, uh, but hopefully we can find other ways to get that kind of concentrated time because that's how a group of random people becomes a family, a family inside a local church community. That's one of the ways. So thanks, thanks again. If you, if you missed out, we, we missed you. Uh, and hopefully you can jump in on the next one. Um, that said, oh, Jonah, Jonah, what a book. And Karen read it just right. Um, because this is one of the books of the Bible that is very extreme. And it's over the top. It's comical at times. Uh, and it's wild and wacky. Um, and it's one of the books of the Bible that has just a couple of hyper-specific images. Like, if I say the word Habakkuk, most of you got nothing. You're just like, sounds like a Bible guy, but I don't know. Uh, Habakkuk's one of the prophets, but you don't know anything about Habakkuk. And I'm frankly not sure I could tell you anything about Habakkuk off the top of my head either. But I say Jonah, what comes to mind? Whale or the big fish. Yes. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I wanted you to say. The fish or the whale. We think of the scene in the book where a giant fish or a whale swallows our hero and then spits him out on the dry land three days later. And because of that, because of that thing, for many people, Jonah becomes a shorthand. It becomes a shorthand for the absurdity of the Bible. It becomes... Uh, the shorthand for the silliness of the biblical claims. It becomes uh, just a picture of the final foolishness required to take the Bible as anything more than just a collection of ancient children's stories and leaving it at that. Um, but what if Jonah isn't a children's story at all? What if it isn't simplistic? What if it isn't naive? What if it is, in fact, a deep, literarily complex work of prophetic satire? Let's take a few minutes and talk about some important features of the book. So it's one of the books of the 12 minor prophets that kind of work together as this mini collection within the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, um, which is there a part of the entire Christian Bible made up with the New Testament as well. But in terms of its relationship to the other prophetic books, it's very, very unique. It stands alone because... Most of the other prophetic, basically all of the other prophetic books, major and minor, big and small, they're basically collections of oracles. They're collections of sayings that God inspired these prophets to go deliver, largely to Israel. Hey, you're not following the terms of the covenant. You are giving yourself over to injustice. You're giving yourself over into idolatry. You're giving yourself over into whatever it may be that you're chasing after that's harming your relationship with God. Therefore, there's going to be problems. You need to repent. You need to turn. Almost all the prophets, they might have a little bit of story sort of peppered in there, but they're largely just collections of these sayings that the prophets delivered, except for Jonah. Jonah is not like that. 
It's, it's not a collection of oracles. It is a wildly ironic, extreme, quasi-comical story about a prophet. None of the other prophetic books are like that. Many scholars have pointed out that Jonah reads like a parable. It reads like a parable. It has so many features of, of parables um, from the kind of extreme things that happen, including the whale or the fish, um, the, the, the extremity of the characters involved from the selection of Jonah as the prophet that the story focuses on to the selection of Nineveh as the city specifically that he's supposed to go to, the way in which everything you think should happen with a prophet going to one of these pagan cities gets flipped around and turned upside down on its head. The whole thing is just bizarre and wild and extreme and comical, frankly. Um, so if it reads like a parable, that, if that is in fact true, that could mean one of two things. One, one is that it was um, a, a story that was inspired by God, written by someone, uh, under the guidance of his spirit to communicate to Israel important truths. It could be a parable like, let's talk about Jesus' ministry, Jesus' teaching ministry. Think of the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons, which might be the better title. It's a story Jesus told. Is it true? It's not about actual people doing actual things, but the, the truths of that parable are some of the deepest and most profound and most essential to the Christian faith. It's, it's how the gospel works on the human heart, evidenced through these two brothers and their father. Yes, it's true. It's true, but it's true in a different way. It's true in the way that parables are true. Or think of the parable of the Good Samaritan as well, one of Jesus' most well-known stories. It's not, he's not saying this is a thing that happened two weeks ago. He's saying this is how sin and grace and gospel and neighborliness and love is worked out. Pay attention to this. But there are also things, we talked about this a lot when we went through the gospel according to Mark, that are more like enacted parables on Jesus' part as well. Think about the stories of Jesus giving sight to the blind and how the way the biblical narratives structure these, it's like, yes, this is, we're meant to take this. This is a real historical event displaying the power of God through this person, Jesus, healing someone of their blindness but it, every detail of the story is meant to get you to see that, yes, it's about an individual healing, but it's so much more than that. It becomes this parable of what Jesus can actually do for all of our spiritual blindness. You take my point. Or Jesus raising someone from the dead. I just read this story to my kids the other night in one of our little children's Bibles, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That was a thing that happened, but the way that they have artistically rendered this story in our New Testament tells us, like, whoa, this isn't just... One, a one-off story. This is about the nature of Jesus, his resurrection power, punctuating that story with, no, Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. This is a little preview of this deeper truth that's going to be revealed through Jesus' own death and resurrection. And so it very well could be, I think, I think you can read Jonah as a mature, Jesus-obeying, um, God-honoring, Scripture-submitting-to-believer and, and understand it as something that is like the first category, a parable that's told, or like the second category, that all of this did happen historically, and the way that the author has put this together, which is anonymous, we don't know who the author was of the book, the way the author has put this together is helping us see just this cosmic significance to these you know, wild events that happened. Either way, this is God's word to us. We submit to it. We come under it. 
And I would just say too, maybe the thing that gives people most pause about Jonah when they want to say, oh, we can't, we can't view this as history is the whale or the fish episode. And I would just say this, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnated in human flesh, that he did all the things he did, performed the miracles he did, taught with the authority that he had, that he died on a Roman cross publicly that's historically indisputable, and that he then walked out of the tomb bodily, you don't need to have any trouble with this. <laughs> you don't, you, you just don't. You believe, I'm sorry to break it to you, you believe crazier stuff than this already. Like, God is powerful enough to enact this if he can enact that. If he can speak the universe into existence, this is, this is not trouble for him. I hope you take my point there. So I don't really want to get lodged, you know, overly lodged in the debate over the literary nature of the book. I just want to say whether it's a historical account, artistically rendered, or it's a parable, it's truth for us. And either way, we're going to read it with those literary qualities in mind, and it has profoundly deep and rich and wild things to teach us if we have the ears to hear. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to come under it together for the next four weeks. Um, I don't know about you. Any, anyone remember back at Dorvo, you have to be a Dorvo OG 10 years ago, remember when Tim Mackey taught through the book of Jonah? A few. And a few woos in there because... That's what I expected. Because that, I think that was kind of one of the seminal teachings at Door of Hope that a lot of people really were formed by and gravitated towards. I think on his podcast now that recollected some of his sermons, that's like the most popular collection of teachings that was ever given um, on, his, on his podcast. Um, and so I, it, you know, for us, for my family, that was, I think, the first full series that my wife and I like, sat under at Door of Hope when we were just attending 10 years ago at the, at the Hinson Annex. And it was profound and beautiful. And it may beg the question, Cameron, what are you doing teaching this again? <laughs> we kind of already got this from someone clearly a lot more gifted than you. <laughs> and I, I'd say that seriously. He is a lot more gifted than me. And I don't uh, suspect that this is going to be... Uh, you know, as, as good of a teaching. But here's why. Here's why Jonah again now. First of all, it wasn't the majority of you that were there. So that's point enough. We can, we can revisit a book of the Bible if most of us hadn't, hadn't learned it in community together. Uh, but more than that, it's a reminder that the teaching of a local church is not just about giving the facts of a book, but it's to let the facts of the Word of God challenge us it's to, it's to apply them together as a community, and we are a different community now, quite literally, a new church, a new church that's been birthed with a new collection of people here. Um, and, and, and to return to the books, you know, the specific books, when we specifically need them. You know, Jonah's a prophetic, spirit-inspired work that's meant to jolt us from our complacency and our assumptions about so many things and to stir our hearts with the possibility of taking up the mantle of being a presence of salvation and hope uh, and grace to a world that desperately needs it, even specifically to the broken and dangerous cities that we find ourselves near. And our, our graphic here is not about the fish. Like, the fish only is, occurs in two phrases in the book of Jonah, okay? So the, the book is not about the fish. We'll talk about the fish next week, but that's not what the book is about. The graphic is specifically a picture of the city of Nineveh because this is about God's people's relationship to the city, to the cities that they find themselves called to 
by God. And it brings to mind the surprising relationship that God has towards cities like Nineveh. So for us right now, I think we need Jonah because we live in Portland. We live in Portland. And we don't live in Portland in 2013 when my family lived here. And I think it's important for us to just name and take stock of something that's happened. If, if you moved here, say, pre-2020, pre-2019, odds are you moved here because Portland had the reputation of being the hot, hip, coolest, up-and-coming city in the U.S. It had the reputation, you know, if you told your friends from the Midwest or the South or the East Coast or wherever that you're moving to Portland, you got a little bit of clout out of that. You got a little bit like, yeah, I'm going where all the cool stuff is. And yeah, it's a tastemaker, a bit of an influencer myself. But seriously, that was a little bit of the dynamic for us, telling people when we moved from, from Arkansas, like, oh yeah, we're going to Portland. And, you know, some people were horrified at that point and scandalized by that. But other people were like, that's really cool. It's really cool that you're going to go to Portland. And it was cool. It was so cool. It was so fun to live here. 2013, especially before we had kids, 2013, 2015, just explore all the food and the art scene and the music and the independent film theaters, all the stuff is so fun. We're still trying, we're still trying. But I want to name something that's really happened, which is over the last three, four years, Portland has on, undergone a transformation. And Portland had plenty of flaws and dark things and difficulties before that time. But it's just a fact of reality that Portland has suffered a lot, as really all major cities have in the U.S. over this time period. But Portland specifically has gone from a, a name that you utter it, and people are like, ooh, that's kind of cool and exotic, to, oh, you live in Portland. Are, are, are you okay? Are you okay? Didn't I hear Antifa, like, dropped a bomb on Big Pink or something downtown? <laughs> And it's not to dismiss those things, like hard things have happened to our city. Some of you have felt like unsafe in your homes, unsafe at work, unsafe, you know, strolling about town. Um, and whatever your actual reality is, um, the, the deal is reputationally, Portland is no longer seen as a largely as a desirable hotspot. It's no longer seen as the epicenter of cool. It's no longer like Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein, like doing quirky things, putting birds on things, or, you know, around town. It's, uh, it's viewed as a place of danger. It's viewed as a place, um, it's viewed as a place of ugliness for, for a lot of people. And, and maybe for you. Maybe for you, you've gone on a journey of transformation where your relationship to the city where once was like, oh, this is fun and exciting, and now it's like, I, I don't want to be here. I don't like this place. I don't like these people. Uh, and if you could be honest, I don't really want what's best for this city. So I think Jonah, the goal is not to give a better or more fact-accurate uh, sermon series than, than you could go find on YouTube from Tim or, in, or amazing other Bible teachers. Tim Keller, great Jonah book that I, I've been reading through this. Um, but it's for us to, to come to find a uniquely prophetic message for this moment in time that we together as a community here in Portland need to hear. So by God's will, um, that's, that's what will happen by the Spirit's illumination. So let's pray for that and then, and then we'll jump in. That sounds good. So Father, um, I think we need this book. 
We need all of your word. Lord, all of your word is inspired. It's authoritative. It's truthful. It's infallible, God. Um, and we would do well to pick up any one of the books of the Bible as a community and jump through it. But Lord, I, I, I do, the only way I can describe it is I do feel that you have put this book on my heart over the last few months. And I do think there are things in this book for us right now that we desperately need to hear as your people at this time in this place. And I pray, Father, that you would just illuminate every inch of what you would have for us to receive. And Lord, that we would receive it in humility, Lord, as your word, as your word, authoritative over us, good for us, challenging to us, Lord. And that we could catch a bigger vision of what it means to be your people here and now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jonah 1. Jonah 1 starts with a little word about the man. The man, the myth, the legend. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And the, Jonah, the son of Amittai, is interesting because those two Hebrew words, Jonah and Amittai, they have, uh, they're, they're not just uh, proper names. They're, they're words that have, have an alternative meaning. Jonah meaning dove, Amittai meaning faithfulness. So the book starts off with the man, dove, son of faithfulness. You've already read the story. <laughs> like it's, it's not going where maybe the, the phrasing would lead us to think it's going. Jonah son of Amittai, dove, the son of faithfulness. Even the word dove, that is one of the sacrificial animals. Uh, a pure, spotless dove was the cheapest, you know, animal that could be used at the sacrificial system uh, for the Israelites. Um, it might lead us to think of someone who's going to be very self-sacrificial, who's going to give himself over for the good of those around him, perhaps. He's the son of faithfulness itself. But there's also something interesting going on here, like a dual meaning here, because you read that and you go, okay, dove, son of faithfulness. All right, let's see who this amazing prophet's going to be. What's he going to up to? How's he going to inspire us to follow after his example? But Jonah also is an interesting character in the scope of the Hebrew Bible because he occurs one other time, and that's in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14, where he's actually seen encouraging the aggressive military expansion of the king of Israel, Jeroboam II, and he came to, like, so Jeroboam II, bad guy, this imperialistic, like, expansion of Israel's borders through kind of cruel ways. And Jonah is seen in 2 Kings 14 encouraging this. Like, yeah, let's go do it. Let's go do it. So he, Jonah came to be viewed as this sort of figure of intense nationalism and hatred of the nation. That would be the assumption. So right out of the gate, Jonah, son of Amittai, the reader, the average Hebrew reader would be going, whoa, okay, we've got a story about Jonah. His name, I remember is to stir up, you know, images of faithfulness, but his reputation in the Hebrew Bible is one of, like, sort of antagonism towards the surrounding nations. Okay, I'm listening. Let's see what's going on here. What's Jonah, son of Amittai, going to do? So it said the word came to him, and there's a message. Next verse, we see the message that comes to him. What was this word from God that came to Jonah? It was this. Arise. Get up. It's time to go, Jonah. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So to understand what's going on here, we have to know a little bit about Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the ancient nation, 
ancient empire of Assyria, which in its day, its time, was the biggest, baddest uh, empire around. Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And he's calling it great, and largely in terms of population. It's, it's, a, it's a huge city. It's a populous city. It's the capital of the biggest empire in the world at the time. But it's a horrifically violent, oppressive nation. And I won't give you a detailed account because it's, uh, it's too disturbing, frankly, but I'll, I'll give you the categories of the kinds of things that Assyria would do to its enemies. They would torture their enemies. They would dismember their enemies, their military conquests. They would dismember them, and then they would mock them for their dismemberments. They would pull out their tongues. They would burn kids alive. Yes, there was sexual violence. Yes, they would leave piles of decapitated... I said I wasn't going to get that graphic. I'm sorry. The piles of decapitated heads. They would flay people alive, flay the skins off of their bodies and drape them over the city walls. They would decorate their city walls with the, the flayed skins of their enemies as a warning. Don't mess with us, or this will be you too. They would turn the few survivors that they left over to cruel, cruel, cruel forms of slavery. There was a scale of evil here that exists in small pockets around our world today, but we rarely see this kind of mass scale, this amount of just cruel, evil, delighting in, it, delighting in the cruelty that you would, you would see from ancient Assyria. We see it sometimes, but it's a scale of evil and violence that the world still rarely sees to this level. So that's who, that's who Jonah is called to go to. And he, he, he's, he's to go, Jonah want, God wants Jonah to announce its judgment. You, you see that, right? Go to the great city and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me, is what God says. So, the judgment of God. Good thing or bad thing? What do you think? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. The judgment of God here. A lot of us, especially in Portland, where, where we have a reflex to say, oh, we don't, we don't like, even if you're a Christian, we don't like a judging God. Can't he just be cool with everything? And then you listen to what I just read about Assyria. And this is a reminder that the God of the Bible, like it or not, I, su I suggest you should. He is not the kind of God that looks upon the evils of ancient Assyria and says, it's fine. Y'all just... Y'all just do your thing, it's fine. He is not the kind of God who hears the screams of these victims and turns a blind eye. At some point, he is gracious and he's merciful, and that's why he hasn't vaporized Assyria at an instant. But there is a point where the evil comes up to him to such a degree that he says, I have to draw the line. I will bring it to an end. And this is that moment. And interestingly, he doesn't send a meteor shower or something to wipe them out. He says, Jonah, you're going to go. You're going to go, and you're going to speak against them. You're going to speak against them. Call out against them, for their evil has come up to me. God wants to decree through Jonah that their days of perpetuating this evil and this oppression are over. And that is good news, friends, to everyone else, isn't it? It is good news to everyone else who has suffered at their hand. So, what does... 
Dove, the son of faithfulness, do when he gets this call? Verse 3, he refuses. He refuses. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down to it and he got with them to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And Jonah's a prophet. He doesn't, he doesn't mistakenly, he's not some idiot who believes I can literally go away from the presence of God. God's not going to find me if I go over here to Tarshish. But relationally, he's like, I am going as far away from your purposes and plans for me as I could possibly go. As I could possibly go. He's going as far as he could possibly go. Tarshish in the Bible, or at this point in history, it was the furthest uh, west someone could go from their position in Israel. It was the edge of the known world. So it was, it was the city outpost before the vast ocean begins, and no one possibly could know what was on the other side of that ocean at this time. Like, so there's little seas and rivers and things, of course, but you go to Tarshish, you are on the edge of the known world. All that's between you there <laughs> and, and the endless, chaotic death machine of the ocean is nothing. It's as far as you could go. So he's going, instead of going east to Nineveh, he goes as far west as he could possibly go to the edge of the known world. Interestingly, too, Tarshish was a place of incredible natural resources. And there are a few Im key images throughout the Hebrew Bible where, uh, you know, the image, the ships of Tarshish comes up a lot. These are these amazing ships. They were this powerful seafaring place, and they would carry wood and gold and these amazing resources. And Tarshish came to represent the idea of sort of building up your own city your own material, your own Eden. If you wanted to manufacture life the way you wanted to, Tarshish became a shorthand for don't go, don't go with God's plans, go to Tarshish. There you'll find what you need to build your own thing over against the plans and purposes of God. I think that's significant for the story that's being told here. So that's Tarshish. But what's the reason for Jonah's running? Why is Jonah running here? I think there are two reasons that I, I think both of them are true. But I think the first is a minor reason, and the second is the major reason, according to the book. The first is just fear, right? There's no way Jonah's not feeling fear here. Okay, you want me to go to the most violent, oppressive, evil, torturous nation on the world, to go stand in the middle of the city and to say, uh, God's gonna judge you. How do you think that's gonna go? <laughs> well or poorly, you think. It's fair to assume there's a great deal of danger involved in partaking of this mission. He, and he does not want to become one of the victims himself. I like my skin. I'd prefer for it not to end up on the city wall. But the second thing, and we're told in chapter 4, this is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of Jonah's you know, reaction here. It doesn't have to be divorced from the first. The even deeper element is hatred. The even deeper element is hatred. He hates the Assyrians. He hates the Assyrians. He sees the evil that they're inflicting on the world. And he, doesn't want, he doesn't want to do anything to benefit them. He doesn't want to go anywhere near them. He doesn't want, any, he doesn't want to go and be a prophet to them. And there's here, you know, you can, you can read fairly a nationalistic motivation. This, this book as a whole works as a rebuke to any sort of overt, extreme nationalism that would put the interests of our own place, our own people, 
whatever category you want to put there, over against the well-being of another. This, this counterexample, the do not be like Jonah, is a rebuke to the hatred of any person or people who we might deem too far gone to receive the grace of God. This is a rebuke to any hatred of the city that we might find in ourselves. But why is it that? Hang on. Isn't the idea, like, if Jonah hates these guys, wouldn't he want to go deliver a message of judgment against them? Like, yeah, I get to be the one who's going to tell them, like, you're all going to burn. So what's going on here? Wouldn't he have cherished the opportunity on some level to call out against a city like Nineveh? Possibly. Except that he knows the character of God. What do I mean? Jonah knows the character of God better than we do often. Because as we're going to see made explicit in chapter 4, Jonah knows that when, when, when the word of God goes out against a people, which it's going to go here, and they need to have a word against them, don't they? He knows that the judgment of God is always, always, always intertwined with his compassionate mercy. It's always intertwined, and that the invitation to stop what you're doing and repent, it's always, the the invitation is always there to repent and to receive forgiveness. Jonah knows that to go and prophesy against him is not just going to be a simple one-sided, you're done, you're done forever, you know, just, you guys are, are dead, so do what you can. It always implies the possibility of turning, repenting, and receiving the compassionate grace of God. Stop and think about this for a second. Do you expect God's condemnations? And there are condemnations. We can't paper over that in the Bible. And I would argue it's good news that God condemns evil. We might not define it the same way he does, but I think that's our problem, not his. Do we expect God's condemnation to be for the purpose of compassionate forgiveness when we hear of it? If we know the character of God most clearly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ crucified, then we should. Then we should. Would you make that assumption if God came to you and said, go and speak out against them for their evil is great, that, oh, this actually means good news, even for the Ninevites? If not, ask yourself, why not? Even Jonah saw this for what it was. So Jonah doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to be a part of the potentiality of good things and repentance and forgiveness and blessing coming to Nineveh because he hates Nineveh. So he's going to Tarshish, away from the purposes of God, to build up his own, you know, plans for his life, ironically doing the very same thing that the Ninevites and the Assyrians are doing, isn't he? I'm not going where these people are settling for their own agenda over against yours, God. I'm going to go over here where I can settle for my own agenda over against yours. You see the irony. So what happens? Well, there's consequence here. I won't reread the whole passage, but the Lord brings about a giant storm on the sea. 
and it's crazy. Ha- the sailors are having to throw, the bo- throw all their cargo overboard to try to lighten the load. They're trying to keep the ship together. Things are getting more and more desperate. They're so worried and afraid. And I think the image we're meant to see here is that there is always, this is a very Hebrew way of understanding the consequence of human sin, there is always collateral damage to our sin. Jonah may have thought that this decision to just reject God, go over here, only affected him, but it never does. It always has its way of spreading out and spinning out and bleeding off of us and emanating from us and affecting the people around us, damaging, hurting, wounding the people around us. It's never simply individualistic and isolating. So because of Jonah's sin, now this whole group of sailors, they're thrown into disarray. Their lives are literally about to be destroyed. And meanwhile, what's Jonah doing? Just asleep. He's gone down into the boat. He's gone into another little metaphor for, for hiding and distance from God. He's down in the boat and he's just falling asleep. The thing's going crazy and he could not care less. The sleep, I think, we're meant to see as a symbol of his hardness of heart, his obliviousness, even his accidental cruelty towards these people that he's found himself wed to on this boat. So the craziness comes. And, you know, they, they cast lots. They have to, eventually they have to figure out what's going on. They recognize this isn't just a normal storm. There's something supernatural going on here. We need to figure out what's going on here. They cast lots. They throw these little pieces on the ground to try to identify whose fault is this? And it keeps coming up Jonah. Oh, is that that guy that's sleeping downstairs? <laughs> we got to go wake him up. So they go wake him up. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. (laughs) Isn't it obvious? I I fear God. God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the people were exceedingly afraid. And they say, what is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from this God, from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So the one man you think, when you start the book, Dove, son of faithfulness, he's going to be the the prophet, the man of God, the righteous one. He is the one who is suddenly like indifferent to this chaotic storm. He doesn't really care if these people live or die. He's just kind of going along to get along. Yeah, oh yeah, by the way, I'm I'm actually a prophet of the one true God who is actually the creator of the sea and everything. But, and they're like, what is going on? And so they say to him, next, next section here, we're going to see the repentance coming. They say to him, what, do, what, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down? And the sea grew more and more crazy. The sea is just continuing to get worse and worse and worse. And he said to them, okay, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this thing has come upon you. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, okay, take me back to Joppa. I know what I have to do. I've got to go back. I've got to reclaim the mantle that God's given me. I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to do what he's asking me. He doesn't say that. In fact, they're trying to row back. It says in verse 13, they rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Jonah could have said, okay, uh, this is on me. I know what I need to do now. I'm going to go back. Instead, he says, just kill me. I'd rather die. I'd rather die than go and do what God has for me here. And they don't love this idea. Because they don't want innocent blood, or maybe not innocent blood in this case, on their hands. So they're trying to get back to the land, but they can't. And therefore, they called out to the Lord. They pray to his God, to Jonah's God. He hasn't prayed. Jonah hasn't turned to God here. 
But these pagan sailors, they cry out to the one true God, to Yahweh. They say, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're basically saying like, it seems like this is what we're supposed to do. Your prophet is telling us we need to throw him over the boat and that we're trying to other ways to avoid harming him. But he's kind of stuck on his thing and I, I don't know if we have another choice. God, please be merciful to us. We don't want innocent man's blood on our hands, but we're, I, I guess we're going to throw him in. I guess we're going to throw him in. So they pray. Then they pick up Jonah and they hurled him, hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men, these pagan, Gentile sailors, and sailor, sailors, sailors, rough crowd, pagan, Gentile sailors, feared the Lord exceedingly. Now they don't fear the storm. They fear God, which is a synonym for that reverent sense of cosmic awe at his power. The fact that he holds their lives in their hands too. They feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the repentance note is not Jonah's repentance, not here. That's coming later. He's not the one who sees the signs and says, oh God, I should turn from my ways. He, he doesn't care. He obviously says, just kill me. I'd rather die than do this mission that God has for me. But it's the pagan sailors, not the man of God, not the prophet, not the supposedly righteous one, not the dove son of faithfulness who repents. It's these guys who see the working of God even through Jonah's disobedience. And they say, we fear you, God. They offer a sacrifice to this God. They make vows to this God. There's a conversion. So the God who we know cares deeply about, these, the, uh, cares deeply about all the nations of the earth. That is Israel's point is to be a lighthouse that draws the nations to them for worship. And here's this condensed symbol of that in the person of Jonah, representing all of Israel. He, he will not take up that mantle for the good of the nations. He only wants it for himself. He only has his own purposes in mind. He flees. He causes all this terror for these people. And even through Jonah's willful disobedience, God himself uses that to bring about what? The repentance of the nations. He still enacts his purposes and plans for good despite his prophet's unfaithfulness crazy. It's crazy. Jonah chapter 2, or verse, chapter 1 verse 17 continues what happens next. We're going to leave it on the cliffhanger. We're going to leave it on the cliffhanger. We'll pick this up next week. But Jonah chapter 1, I just want you to see how much satire is laid on here. Again, it is not who the so-called man of God who ends the scene close and obedient and connected to God, but it is the last ones you'd expect. God is making headway in pursuing the nations, but Jonah only has anything to do with it through his <laughs> rebellion and disobedience. I would just say to all of us who are Christians in the room, how often are we as Christians the ones who are arrogant, presumptuous, self-satisfied in our own vision for the good that we miss out on what God is really after. 
How often are we in the seat of Jonah? When God wants to do something far more beautiful and incredible and grace-filled than we could imagine. And we say no. We refuse to be the, the glorious vehicle through which he does that work. Here we see God can even use our disobedience and rebellion towards his good purposes. He won't make us submit in partnership to him. He won't, let, he won't make us experience the joy of stepping into this with him and getting to share in his heart, be his mouthpiece for the good and the beautiful and the true, for the gift of Christ to any who believe. He won't force us, but he will still bring about what he wants to do, even if it's without us. But friends, the greater joy is always found in partnering with him. Always. May we not be the ones whose only role is dis some sort of reverse disobedience in bringing about what God wants, wants to see happen. I think Jonah chapter 1 raises another question for us, which is this. Do you carry compassion? Or sorry, put it the other way. Do you carry hatred or dismissal for those God might have compassion for? How about towards our great city, Portland? How about for the city we find ourselves in that has so many problems, so many hostilities, so many challenges right now? But how's your heart towards it? In Jesus, in Jesus, we find what Jonah didn't have. We find the motivation and the power to have that compassion, to share that compassion with God. By the cross of Jesus, we are reminded Lest we fall into Jonah's trap and think, oh, there is no way that I could have compassion on those people. There's a bit of presumption there that Jonah is the righteous one. He doesn't need to go and give He doesn't really need the grace of God because they don't, need, they don't need the grace of God. They don't deserve the grace of God, and I don't need the grace of God. But in the cross, we are reminded, we are reminded so powerfully of the fact that we do need the grace of God. If every single person didn't, wasn't in need of his loving compassion and grace, Jesus wouldn't have needed to die, but he did. The cross reminds us that we need his forgiveness. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We are no better than the Ninevites. There's no, there's no separate categories, people who need Jesus and people who don't. It's not only the people that skin people alive that need the grace of God. It's everyone. God isn't only interested in the most flagrant, abrasive, grotesque acts of violence. He's interested in that little seed of a nugget inside your heart and inside mine that could grow into that left unchecked. He wants it down here, and everyone's got it right here. What, however, however much room we've all given it to grow in our own lives, it doesn't matter. He wants it down here. He wants to deal right there if he's going to have purpose if he's going to accomplish his purposes in the world. The cross reminds us that that's what you need, that's what I need. But the cross doesn't just remind us of our own sinfulness and that we're in the same boat as the Ninevites. We are reminded of the love of God displayed on the cross, whereby both God's justice and his grace can be poured out. Where the judge of the universe becomes the judged in its place. When we look upon Jesus, we, we lose all reason for self-confidence and pride and arrogance over against whatever we see out there in our city or beyond. 
but we're also reminded of the radical compassion that forgives so greatly that how could we not forgive as well? The radical love that pursues so hard that how could we, how could we not pursue others with that love as well? The radical grace that transforms that how could we not want to see go out and transform the people around us? So may we not make Jonah's mistakes again. May we step into our role as a kingdom of priests, that's what we're called, for the good of our city. May we run toward the city that God loves with the same love burning in our hearts, vocalized in our mouths, and enacted through our hands. Amen? There's a lot more to say. That's for next week. Let's pray. Let's pray.